Welcome to the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ario Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. Our theme question for this episode of the podcast, what does it mean to have a faith that is simultaneously ancient and modern, one that is rooted in the past, but responsive to the challenges of the present? Or to put it in the language of my tradition, what does it mean to be always reforming? To help us with this question, I've invited a guest co-host onto the podcast, Dr. Gail Dornbos. Together, we talk with James Eglinton, a theologian and the author of the recent highly acclaimed biography of Hermann Bavink. Bavink was a Dutch polymath, a theologian, churchman, politician, and writer who has much to teach us about the resiliency of faith in the face of fresh challenges. As we've done with previous episodes, we are giving away three copies of James Eglinton's biography of Bavink, and you can enter the drawing by chasing the link in the episode description or sharing the podcast on social media. Thanks again for tuning in. I first encountered Calvinism just over 20 years ago as a college student through the influence of John Piper who was rising to national prominence at the turn of the 21st century. Piper's exposition felt, well, irresistible, and I began to devour new Calvinist sermons and books. A Christian college like the one I attended was the best and the worst place to become a new Calvinist. There were plenty of arguments to be had, and we had them. But as I moved on to seminary and then into pastoral ministry, I began to grow weary of the debates, and to be honest— of the Calvinists. I wondered why doctrines of grace seemed to produce such grace-less people. And for years, when somebody would ask me if I was a Calvinist, I would reply, yes, but I'm looking for a way out. I did not find my way out. Instead, I found my way further in, but into another stream of Calvinism. And while there were family resemblances between these two streams— I found this new stream to be less interested in owning the other side and more interested in discerning created structures and creative obedience in every sphere of life. In this new stream, I found something that resonated deeply, a theology that told me that every part of life matters and that culture, rather than being a dangerous distraction, was the space in which discipleship actually occurred. That stream of Calvinism is the Dutch stream. And though it has problems of its own, like all faith traditions, in it I found a theological home. This episode is more indulgent than most, a bit longer, and also more firmly within my own theological tradition. But the questions we are pursuing are broadly applicable for all Christians wrestling with the question of what it means to hold on to an ancient faith in the face of the challenges of the modern world. The biography of a 19th century Dutch theologian may seem like a strange place to begin, but if you listen, I think you will find that his story and setting have more parallels with our own than we might initially believe. I want to welcome two friends to the In All Things podcast. For this episode of the podcast, we have a guest host, Dr. Gail Dornbos. Gail is a scholar and a professor who has taught for Calvin Seminary, Wycliffe College, and Redemption Seminary, 
But the thing we are most excited about is that she is joining us this fall in the theology department at Dort University. Gail, thanks so much for agreeing to host this episode with me. Thanks for asking, and I'm elated to be joining you guys um, this fall. Gail's specialty is Trinitarian theology, concentrated on the work of Dutch theologian Herman Bavink. And part of the reason why you are helping me host is because that is also the special area of our guest. Dr. James Eglinton is a systematic and historical theologian working out of the University of Edinburgh, and he has been mentoring and leading a productive group of translators and scholars revitalizing the tradition. And his most recent book is the critically acclaimed biography, Bavink, a critical biography with Baker Academic. James, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's great to talk with you both. So I am here as the Bavink novice amid two Bavink specialists, and it will be my responsibility to play the role of the person who knows comparatively little about Bavink, a role I can play easily, though I have read the biography and a good amount of Bavink's work. Uh, but my job is to sort of keep you two out of the footnotes as best I can. Um, I'll start with a question for you, James, that many of our listeners may have less familiarity with Bavink, or maybe not all of them will even self-identify as reformed. So let me start with a very basic question. What is a critical biography and what has Bavink done to deserve such a thing? <laughs> Thanks. That's a great question to begin with. A critical biography is a specific kind of biography. A biography obviously is a life story, so everyone knows that. But if you think about the reasons that you might have for trying to tell someone's life story, there are all kinds of different reasons. So when people write about biographies, they tend to group them together into two groups. And one group is what we call commemorative biography. So biography written to promote someone's great name or manage their reputation in a certain way so that they always come out of it looking good. So that would be things like hagiography, which we talk about within Christianity, the lives of saints that are written to highlight their their good points, rather than to show you, you know, warts and all approach to the saints also as sinners. Um, or it could be the kind of authorized biography that is really popular nowadays, where the person who's written about it actually reads it and says, yes, I'm happy with the way that you presented my life. It can go out there. People who do that generally aren't very interested in biographies of themselves that show spectacular failures or disappointments or um, just embarrassing and awkward phases of their lives. Um, so there's the commemorative group of biographies. But the other kind of biography that we talk about is called critical biography. And um, so it's historically what you would think about as a warts and all biography, where the biographer is really trying to give a well-rounded picture of the human being. So not just the things that make the figure come out looking really good at the end of it. Um, so it's, a, and the way that you do that is by being committed to critical historical uh, research methods. So you have to go away and think really critically about what the sources tell you. You have to read across the sources as widely as you can. Uh, so that for a figure like this is letters, diaries, newspapers, unpublished manuscripts, all that kind of stuff. And then the sources are the thing that really tell the, well, they set the story that you have to tell. They give you things that, um, they give you parameters, I guess, things that you need to say and also things that you can't ignore. So if you find things that are disappointing about that figure, for example, you're not at liberty just to leave that out because you want to make the figure look good. If you're doing that, then you're not within 
working within critical biography, you really belong on the commemorative biography side right. of things. So it's for a different kind of method. Uh, and um, it does give you a different kind of picture of the person. Personally, I think that it's a much more useful sort of biography um, for lots of different reasons. It's more reliable in the first place. And if someone does their job properly as a critical biographer, you can be much more confident in the claims that they're making because you expect a critical biographer to have sources that back up everything that they're saying. So they're not making it up. Um, but also, you know, not just thinking about historical method or scholarship, thinking about it from a Christian perspective as well, being committed to the idea that people are sinners and that the world is a fallen place. Um, it's really useful, I think, to have biographies of very significant Christian thinkers, leaders, theologians, that are not hagiography, that are actually attempts to get to grips with this as a real person who was not a perfect person, uh, even if they were remarkable um, as individuals. So I think that it's, it's a really useful kind of biography to have, actually. It demystifies things. So what did Baving do to deserve a critical biography? Well, yeah, it's not critique in terms of trying to tear him down or anything like that, but... Um, I think that he, what did he do to deserve it? He left behind all of the kind of sources that you, a critical biographer needs. So um, he deserves it in that regard, right? So he chronicled his life very carefully. He left us with a lifetime of journals, lots and lots of letters, unpublished manuscripts. So he's actually a, an ideal subject for a critical biography. Yeah, thanks for that, James. And I think one of the things that really does come through throughout the biography as I read it was this is a real person. This is a real human that I'm reading about not only somebody that I've studied, but sort of the life of Bobbing came to the fore. But one of the things that really fascinated me about your critical biography was the epigraph that you chose, which has nothing to do specifically with Bobbing, but is from a quote by Jürgen Moltmann. And if the listeners are okay, I'm gonna read it. It's a little mm -hmm. bit long. Um, and then I have a question sort of to follow up. So the quote that you chose was, so in practice, man is the greatest puzzle that man has. He needs to know himself in order to live and to make himself recognizable to other people. But at the same time, he must remain concealed from himself in order to be able to remain alive and free. For if he is finally able to get behind himself and could establish what was the matter with him, nothing would any longer be the matter with him, but everything would be fixed and tied down and he would be finished. The solution of the puzzle, what man is, would then be this, at the same time be the final release from being human. As we experience being human, we experience it as a question, as a freedom and as openness. I was wondering what led to the choice of that epigraph and how it might tie into what a critical biography is and, and what its purpose is, especially yeah. with something that involves so much intensive scholarly work. Thanks. So I've done a lot of podcasts and interviews on the biography but you're actually the first person to ask a question about that quote at the beginning. So I think that's great. And I'm really pleased to find someone engaging with it and wondering why it's there. It's there very deliberately. It's a quote taken from a text that I teach fairly regularly every couple of years here in Edinburgh with my students when we cover theological anthropology. I think that it's a very articulate, short statement on the mystery of being human that actually what it means to be human is to question, to ask questions of yourself. Um, and to be human is something that always has this unfinished quality. And if you could very neatly define everything about your life, if you had no questions about it, um, if your life was questionless, then 
you would cease to be human. Um, I think that Moltmann is, is correct there. And I think that it matches Bavinckson's sentiments on being human. But I wanted to begin it with maybe someone rather, not, not Bavink himself, but someone who's theologically um, you know, not not quite in the same line of being reformed as Bavink, so Moltmann is a bit different. Um, but I also wanted to include something like that by a figure in a different tradition, because I think it's quite a Bavinkian thing to do, to to look for truth wherever you find it, and to feel at liberty to engage with modern theology quite broadly like that. It's exactly the kind of thing that Bavink did throughout his own lifetime. So I, th I thought, at least I hope that it would be the kind of quote that he would approve of, um, even if Theologically, he and Moltmann are are not always on the same page. Um, so I thought that it was a, I, it's something that I try to impress on my students. When you're thinking theologically about being human, um, you realize actually that it, that so much of it is about question, and that actually the human being itself is like a walking question mark. Ultimately, you know, pointing to to our creator. I think that I found out a very helpful theological lens to bring with me at the beginning and thinking about trying to tell a life story. Yeah. Speaking of mysterious humans who are walking question marks that have generated a lot of other question marks, the giant of our tradition, the Dutch Calvinist tradition is Abraham Kuyper, who some people might be more familiar with, uh, the polymath neo-Calvinist who is famous for saying that Christ claims every square inch. Our institution, Dort University, wouldn't exist without Kuyper. And in our circle, we're, we're proud of Kuiper, but we're also embarrassed by Kuiper, both when public figures in the States especially uh, quote him in service of their political ambitions, and, and maybe more seriously when we encounter some of his writings on race. But it's common in our tradition to contrast Kuiper with Bavink, with the idea that Bavink may offer some sort of corrective to Kuiper's eccentricity or excess. And I wonder if you could compare the two figures, perhaps for those of us who might not be able to distinguish as easily between the one or the other. What do you see as the most important contributions of each? And how is Bavink in some way carrying forward uh, what Kuiper was wanting to do? Thanks. That's a very good question as well. Something that I do try and get at a lot in the biography is how we need to understand their lives as overlapping and intertwined and interrelated. I think it can be tempting to play Bavink against Kuiper as though you know, we're embarrassed with Kuiper because he says things that aren't very careful and Bavink is such a precise figure. I think that's of that's limited usefulness, actually, because without Kuiper, there would be no Bavink. Kuiper is their first. Kuiper narrates a movement into existence, the anti-revolutionary movement that becomes the neo-Calvinist movement. And Bavink has a particular relationship to Kuiper that is, well, I guess what I try and describe in the biography is that he becomes a careful interpreter of Kuiper, who tries to mediate Kuiper to their church and also to the Dutch public as well. I think Bavink was quite aware that he, he was a more precise thinker. And he was aware that Kuiper needed someone who knew his work, work very well and who was able to, to refine it and, and critique it as well. But I think that to do that, if you are Herman Bavink, you have to tread very carefully because Kuiper didn't always respond well to people who challenged him in public. You know, just because he was that kind of personality type that ends up, you know, that goes from nowhere to becoming prime minister. There's just a certain kind of personality type that, that tends to accompany that trajectory in life. Um, and it's a kind of personality type that just doesn't always respond well to... Um, you know, head-on public criticism. 
So if you can see insights in someone like that, and you think that those are really worth retaining and pushing forward, but you think they need to be formulated more um, carefully, the way that you have to do that has to be very subtle. And you have to do it in a way that makes the other figure see that you're actually doing them a useful service. But that you know that that you're their ally rather than their enemy, and you're trying to help them and improve what they're doing. So there's that aspect of it, um, and I've tried to show in the biography some ways that I think Kuiper tries to do that. Um, there's another aspect of it that I've been working on since I finished the biography. That's based on what Kuiper writes about um, the history of genius, and. Mm the history of Christian theology. And this is in his Encyclopedia of Sacred Theology. So this is like the first volume of that of that work by Kuiper is a history of who, you know, he thinks the significant uh, thinkers are in the history of Christianity. And he, he groups this long list of figures into two kinds of genius. One sort of genius is what I call when I read Kuiper, the genius of perception. And then the other kind of genius is the one who masters the thing that has been perceived. So the kind of imagery that Kuiper uses is that the genius of perception is like a gold digger, not in the looking to marry for money sense, but like literally a gold digger. Um, That if you descend into a a dark mine, you know, and if you have a completely untrained eye and if, if you just have no gift for perception, you'll just see a, a wall of rock. But there's a particular kind of genius that can look at that wall of rock and see that there is a, a seam of gold running through it. So there's a nugget there. Um, and that's a particular kind of genius to be able to descend into dark places and see something no one else can see. And then you bring it up to the light and everyone sees it for the first time because of your distinct kind of genius. So Kuiper does think that there are geniuses like that in the history of the church. And that's one particular kind of you know genius brain. The other kind of genius, um, Kuiper says, is the goldsmith. So they, their genius isn't the type that goes down into the mine, finds the lump of gold and brings it up. They need it to be brought to them. But when you give them that lump of gold, they have a genius of being able to smelt it and then mold it and craft it to make it something that is truly spectacular but it depends on the first kind of genius to find them that that lump of gold in the first place so that happens with ideas as well Kuiper thinks there's some geniuses in the history of christianity that can have a key insight that no one has ever had before but that kind of genius um, doesn't have the task then of refining that into a whole system of thoughts um, that's what the other kind of genius does. So the two great geniuses of the church, and of the, well, the history of theology for Kuiper, are in the first place Augustine mm. and then Thomas Aquinas. Um, so Augustine has the insight that when we think and talk about God, that's actually, a, a, God is the object of our inquiry, and that's a distinct thing to talk about. And then that gives you distinct thoughts, so sacred doctrine in Augustine's language. So just to perceive that thinking and talking about God is doctrine about a particular thing is a seminal insight. But he says Augustine wasn't a great systematizer and he didn't really elaborate on that key insight. And that's then what Aquinas does, you know, a millennium later uh, in the Summa. So he turns Augustine's key insight that sacred doctrine is a thing into the Summa, into this huge careful work in theology. But when you read that, when you read Kuiper on these two kinds of genius, the obvious question is, okay, Mr. Kuiper, which one are you saying that you are? Mm-hmm. Because he certainly thought that he was a genius and geniuses have to be one of these two sorts. So which one is Kuiper arguing that, that he is? And I think that when you read his encyclopedia, he's the first kind, that he's a genius of perception who thinks he's seen something unique. And he's actually looking for 
um, his own Thomas Aquinas. You know, he's got this lump of gold, but he's looking mm. for someone who's a different kind of thinker who can take his key insight and turn it into something very careful and ornate and deliberate. So the key insight, I think, for Kuiper is that it's to do with Christianity in the modern world, and it's to do with the challenges of the Enlightenment and the resources of the Reformed tradition. And But all of this comes together into one insight, that, that after the Enlightenment, you have this fundamental challenge to Christianity that we should that we don't need it um, and that we can start living and thinking and functioning without Christianity uh, kind of sector by sector across the whole of our human existence so we're relegating it and it's like a stack of or it's like a line of dominoes you know that you knock over the first one and then you don't need Christianity for any of it and we can move in a secularizing direction in all of life um, and then with that you know you have the development of liberal democracy and that's something that Kuiper holds on to but the thing is, in the modern world, in the West, you can't force people to be Christians. It has to be completely voluntaristic. So Christianity in that context actually has to make a case for its validity in each sector of life or each sphere of life in Kuiper's language or in every square inch of life. You have to be able to make a case that Christianity is actually the thing that holds it together, that drives it forward and that makes life worth living that makes life satisfying existentially, intellectually, spiritually. And Christianity has all of the resources to do that, Kuiper thought, in the modern world. And um, so he thought that the modern world was actually setting the stage for Christianity to take its next great leap forward, to be this thing that is so glorious, even when it, you don't live within Christendom anymore, um, and that can come through all of the challenges of modernity and the Enlightenment and so on. So that's the key insight for Kuiper. And he has this set of instincts about what that will look like when you Christianize life, Christianize social institutions, Christianize intellectual disciplines, um, and so on. But then if he's that first kind of genius who has what he thinks is the seminal insight, he needs a different kind of genius who can, who can be his um, goldsmith. Or the other image he uses in his encyclopedia is the image of the pearl diver who can swim you know, down into the sea and spot the clam, take it up to the surface. But the jeweler has a completely different task in taking mm -hmm. the pearl out and making it ornamental. So I think that he he's aware that he needs someone like this, and that is Herman Bavinck. So I don't think that Bavinck is just this kind of direct rival, you know, who, who wants to do the same thing as Kuiper, but do it better. I think that at least from Kuiper's perspective, he sees that he has one set of gifts and skills, but he needs someone who who can craft this into something better, make it very make it very careful and deliberate. So, you know, if you think of a Bavinck biography, you could not tell his story without Kuiper. Right. If there'd been no Kuiper in my biography, uh, it, it would have been impossible to tell the story. But I think something that, that maybe Kuiper biographies have tended to lack is Bavinck. So if you read most Kuiper biographies, you'll find a handful of references to Bavinck across the whole thing, um, where you know he's he's just one of a cast of the figures, many, many figures that Kuiper interacts with. But I actually think that Kuiper biographies probably need a bit more Bavinck um, in recognizing the way that Kuiper understood himself and what he needed for his vision to be developed in the modern world. It's always fascinating to hear the relationship between Kuiper and Bavinck and also some of the ways in which we've articulated their relationship, especially from either the Bavik side or the Kuiper side. Uh, as you were talking, you were talking a lot about the shifts to modernity. And in your biography, you highlight a lot of the things that are going on in the 19th century, 
politically, socially, ecclesially. And it really does make this point, I think, that their work is done in the midst and in the midst of history in a particular context. And I think I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about how that not only formulated the relationship between Kuiper and Bavink, but what kind of questions Bavink was asking? Um, what kind of questions were situated because of his context that he found really important to try to answer? Something that is really important, not just in reading Bavink, but reading all theologians, is that theology is never written without context, right? So it's always written by real human beings. They never live within a vacuum. There's always somewhere that they're writing from. And as you and you know, you, your question is completely right uh, in that they're also writing because of that context, and they're writing to that context as well. So for Bavinck, you know, he's born in 1854. He lives until 1921. So he's born into and then dies in two very different worlds, um, almost unrecognizable in some senses from the mid-19th century until 1921, so two decades into the 20th and after World War I. I think that that context creates so many of the questions that animate his life and that also give his identity as a neo-Calvinist and why that even happens and becomes a thing. So I think a lot of the questions are to do with the development of liberal democracy as a way of organizing society. So, And this is something that is, I think, not intuitive for a lot of us in the 21st century to think about when we think about the Western world, because you know, in Europe and in North America, we think of the West as just this cradle and bastion of being you know, free to think what you want and do what you want with your life and of being able to vote. And if you don't like the, the, the government you've got just now, well, in a few years, you can vote them out and you always have the choice for someone else. But that's still a relatively new thing in the history of the West. So if you think of Herman Bavink, you, are, you really are talking about a first generation native in a liberal democratic world where people have very basic freedoms, like freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. Um, so he is a first generation that had only existed for six years in the entire history of the Netherlands when he was born. And if you think of his parents' experience, they came from the society in the first half of the 19th century. You have the Netherlands as a country that is ruled by a strongman monarch who has very particular ideals about religion, morality, society, and who intends to control religion um, through the government to his own particular ends, which were the ends of Immanuel Kant and the Enlightenment. If you talk about this kind of context and talk about um, a country that has government offices that pay pastors' salaries, that produce hymn books telling you, you know, this is what you should be singing on Sunday. And these are all very, you know, patriotic, um, moralistic hymns designed to, you know, make you think, well, there might not have been a resurrection, but there's certainly a great country to belong to now and we should all be good citizens within it. You just instinctively now, we don't think of Western Europe um, because it's so foreign. We probably think just further east in the world rather than further west. But that's the context that the Baving's parents knew in their young adulthood. And that is so foreign to us, but it was very immediate in their memory. So their church had seceded from the the mainline Dutch Reformed Church when it, when it was illegal to do so. Um, and it was really dangerous. Um, you know, we're talking about underground Christianity, contraband Christianity. And if that's what you've known, and then all of a sudden 
1848 comes, there's a, there's a year of revolutions all across Europe, and then just bam, overnight, you have liberal democracy, you've got freedom to think and say and do exactly what you want. You're not going to get beaten up by the police for going to church, um, if it's not the church that previously was the privileged one. Um, you don't have to go to church at all, you can do whatever you want all of a sudden. That itself is so unprecedented and creates so many questions that you have to wrestle through if you're, let's say, the parent who is all of a sudden in a world that is overnight very different from the one that you'd lived in before. But then if you have children within that, um, the questions that you have that you have to think through are, are really significant. So those questions around liberal democracy are very significant. So all of a sudden the state is separate from the church. It doesn't privilege or persecute any form of religion. And all of a sudden the state basically says, okay, religious groups, do your own thing. You know, we're, we're, we don't intend to intervene. You've got this freedom, but you have to live and let live. Just how you navigate the shift to that, if you're from particularly a theologically conservative church that has you know, very exclusive truth claims about Christianity, also about its its own heritage as a denomination, that they are the true Dutch Reformed Church. They broke away because the 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 mainstream church had had abandoned its heritage. Um, how do you think through all of those issues in terms of you know, what does it mean to be a Christian in this new pluralistic world? Does that mean we have to relativize our truth claims? Can we still maintain very strong truth claims, even if, if the cultural way of operating now might look more relativistic, for example. So those are all really significant things. I think alongside that, um, the industrialization creates a lot of questions for Bavink as well, um, because that also produces such huge social changes. Um, so you know, you have the steam engine, you have the second industrial revolution, you have the shift from a society where effectively you, you inherited your profession, your trade, and your identity also from from your father, for example. You know, so if your father was a, a shepherd, you would be a shepherd, and your grandfather was a shepherd and great grandfather. And um and you really learn your trade by growing up around that lineage. Um all of a sudden you have this shift to a knowledge-based economy. And again, that is uh a huge shift in what it means to live within the world and also how to parent as well. Uh, all of a sudden, your child will choose what they will become and they're going to need a lot more education that you don't provide directly in training them in, in your family trade. So that again is a massive shift if you're privileged enough to, to get an education so that you have a lot of choice. But then for lots of people, they didn't in that period. Um, and you know, you you would work in a factory, for example, um, as part of the context of the second industrial revolution where your life would be really, really hard um, in ways that are quite unimaginable to us now in terms of just the the way that this whole model of industry, you know, would just chew you up and wear you out, grind you down. And you, you know, probably wouldn't live to a grand old age because you were a cog in a in a big working machine. Um, so that is also something that's very new. It's a huge shift from earlier patterns of work and how that fitted into how you thought about your life in Europe until then. So it really was a revolution in terms of industrialization. And that creates really big questions as well around what it means to be human, what it means to be the image of God. What's the purpose of work? How do you think through those questions? So there, there are lots of things like that. And I could go on as well, you know, with science, with the, with the Enlightenment, with developments in atheism. But the, all of these things come together to make Bavink think, I'm in this reformed tradition and it has great resources. And if you go back into that tradition, you see that it's a faith for all of life. And, you know, the Reformation in Geneva wasn't just, you know, that we now think differently about 
the doctrines of grace, although we do, or that, you know, we don't have the Pope as the head of our church anymore, as though it's not a reformation of anything beyond that. They look back and see Calvin's Geneva was different, and the reformation is social as well, and Christianity does have resources to address all of life. But, you know, you can't just keep on like, reading 17th century texts because the world is so different. And you have all of these huge shifts all around you. So 19th century Europeans were really aware that the, that the ground, I kind of use this motif that I riff off a lot in the book, that the ground is constantly shifting beneath their feet. Mm -hmm. um, so if everything is shifting, you, what you need to do if you're Herman Bavinck is use your own tradition, but you have to make it neo somehow, right? You can't just have like paleo-Calvinism because it addresses a lot of questions, but it, it leaves so many of the big questions of your day unanswered. But do you have con confidence in the tradition that you can keep on asking those questions with it and move forward with it? And Bavinck really does. Um, so I think, you know, that the whole context is, is what I think we need to grasp to make more sense of what even neo-Calvinism is or what is a neo-Calvinist theologian. Yeah, you've anticipated my next question. And, and I love that answer because I think a lot of times we tend to think of the past as it was not as complicated to be a Christian back then as it is today. You know, they didn't have the internet or, you know, whatever it is. But to the way that what really comes through in the book is that you have this sort of revol revolutionary ethos on the one side, you have a legacy of Christian nationalism, you have technological, scientific, new a, a new atheism of sorts, all of these sorts of things that we talk about uh, now that Bob Inc. is wrestling with a lot of these things. And the theme of this particular episode is really based around this idea of what does it mean for us to be always reforming uh, in accordance with the word of God. And Bavink is so interesting because of the ways you've described that he wants to be a neo-Calvinist and he wants to hold the past together with the future. There's this quote that I wrote down uh, from the biography where he says, to praise the old simply because it is old is neither reformed nor Christian. And dogmatics does not describe what used to be the case but rather what must be the case now. It is rooted in the past, but works for the future. So I wonder what you think Bavink's central contributions are for us now as we think about reforming, always reforming in accordance with the word of God, but having a faith that is not just trying to repristinate what's in the past, but is actually trying to do something that's faithful, but also relevant as we, as we live with faith today. Thanks. That's a huge question um, and a very significant one too. So what do we make of Bavinck's approach to ongoing reformation, right? So that's not something that he reflects on very explicitly too often in his own texts, this, you know, reform church always reforming idea. He does reflect on it at a couple of points, though. Um, but I don't think that that's maybe the most obvious entry point into how we think through what Bavinck is doing. Um, because for Bavinck, he has a particular view of history that informs that informs I guess, the thing that we're trying to get at here. Um, and in particular, the idea that there's just no golden age to go back to. So, you know, history is um, something that is constantly in a process of becoming. And, and that is because it's part of the created order of the world. So for Bavinck, God is being. God is the only thing that is, that doesn't change. That is simply, that is absolute perfection, absolute being. But the the creation, the world, the cosmos is becoming. Um, it's always changing because it's not God. So it's always in this process of becoming in the first place. So you you just don't have a golden age, or, you know, 
after the fall to to look back to and say, well, you know, if we can just keep things as they were back then in the 17th century, then that will be great. So in the first place, his view of history is not like that. But as well as that, he has a distinct view of Catholicity that I think is really important and is very, I find it very instructive to try and grapple with over a number of years. So his view of Catholicity is that Christianity is a, so there are lots of levels to this, and one of them is something I've already touched on. Christianity is a faith for every square inch of your life, right? So Christianity is not only a faith for church worship or private devotions or limited parts of your life. It's actually a faith that, that lays claim on every area of your life. So that's one aspect of it. So it's Catholic in that sense. So there's no part of your life that Christianity doesn't address. And also that doesn't pursue the redemption of in the same way that there's no part of your life that sin doesn't seep into uh, because you are depraved in totality. If not, you're, you're not absolutely, but there's no part of your life that sin hasn't had an effect on. And in the same way, there's no part of your life that, that Christianity doesn't also transform. But another layer of what Catholicity means for Bavink is that Christianity is a faith for all peoples and all cultures at all points of history. So Christianity is not a parochial faith or a local faith. In the same way that it's not just a local localized faith in one part of your life, it's also not a localized faith for one ethnic group, um, one particular century in the history of the world, um, or one you know segment of the human population, like for Western people or something like that, or 17th century people or first century people. So to talk about Christianity as Catholic is to say that Christianity is something that takes root and that can take roots in every human culture. That's not to say that it approves of everything in every human culture, but that um, it is there for it, and, and also to pursue the redemption of people in every human culture. So if you start to think of it like that, I think that that then gets us towards what you're asking in the question about um, you know what we can learn in our own day as well when we think about maybe the idea of always reforming and the complexity of the past as well. So for you know we look back at Bavinck's life and I think the more you get into it the more you see that the questions of what it means to be a Christian if you're born in 1854 in the Netherlands those are really complex questions to be a reformed Christian because of all the new questions that you have to grapple with about what does it even look like to be the church in this new form of society that is unlike anything we've seen before? Or, you know, how do you engage with this new kind of atheism that was around in his day? Um, it was a really complex thing. So, you know, so you might, you could take a very detached view of Bavinck from his reform dogmatics and think, wow, you know, whoever wrote this must have lived in a really rosy period. Um, but actually, it was a very complex period. But then when you look at Bavinck and you look at the ways that he looked at Christians in previous centuries, you also find that a similar appreciation for how complex it was to be a Christian in those particular contexts. And you just you don't have, you know, rose-tinted spectacles looking back at the Reformation era as though, uh, or, you know, the Puritans or something like that, as though there was some bygone era where, um, where human culture and Christianity just so completely overlapped that it was just easy. That never, ever existed for Bavink. Right. And I think then that... I think that's what gives him a lot of confidence and the ability to go on pursuing reformation, let's say, to be renewed in the likeness of Christ in every sphere of his life and to promote that around him. You can do that in your generation because that's what every generation of Christians has done in the past. And then it's what Christians in the future will need to go on doing as well. So I think, you know, if you look at if you look at Bavink 
towards the end of his life, he, he had a pretty gloomy view of what he thought was going to happen in the rest of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And he was really right some lots and lots of it um, in terms of, you know, the, the, the stage was set for a Hitler figure. It, that would have been no surprise to him when you look at the way he describes how the century will pan out. He thought, um, we are set for another dictator and um, many more lives to be lost than for a might is right philosophy of domination, um, all of those things. So he didn't think that this was going to be easy at all to live on into the 20th century. But at the same time, he he, he did have a lot of confidence in Christianity to address those questions. Um, so if you look at later on in his life, he invests himself a lot in um, student societies, for example, and in talking with them about the challenge that would lie before them in, in decades where they would outlive him. Um, and what he thought would be a very hard century of trying to hold things together that were collapsing in the West, but also you know facing those collapses, the challenge to rebuild um, is a really tough one. But he he does have this confidence in in Christianity in order to do that. As we think about Bavink engaging with the context and the questions of his day, I think one thing that's always struck me is his Irenicism is reaching out to see how other people are viewing or answering the questions. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, not only in terms of how he shapes his theology, but also maybe in terms of the various aspects of his life. I mean, he wasn't just a theologian. He was a churchman. He was a politician. He was a friend. That comes through in your biography a lot as we read the letters that he's written back and forth. What are some of the ways that you see that at play, not only sort of in the obvious spaces of theology, but also in the rest of his life? Yeah, that's one of the most intriguing things about him, really. When you get into the the nitty gritty of his life, and you look at the friendships, and you see how diverse they are, um, it's very striking. Um, I do think that in the background to this, actually, you have, I hope anyway, some of the benefits of really good catechesis in the Dutch Reformed tradition. Not that this is a like a guaranteed outcome, but if you look at so Bavink is obviously Dutch reform by background, grows up with a Heidelberg catechism, where that plays a very formative role in what we could call character development and the shape of the Christian life. And that, you know, it's structured in 52 sections, one per Sunday. So you grow up hearing this preach through every year of your life. And then if you become a pastor, you preach through it every year of your life as well. Um, so actually this, this last week I was... Um, so I, I teach a Dutch class here with my PhD students, and this year with my first year students, we've been reading the Heidelberg Catechism in Dutch. And this week we did the Ninth Commandment. And the Catechism's exposition of the Ninth Commandment is really striking in how fully it unpacks what it means not to bear false witness um, against your neighbour. And that includes really explicitly that you can't twist people's words, you can't say that they think things that they don't think. Um, and you also have a positive re- duty from God to do all that you can to promote your neighbor's good name and honor. And if you've grown up hearing at least one Sunday a year on that, and in Bavink's case from his dad as well, who, who was also a very ironic figure. Um, and then, you know, if as a pastor, then you go on and you, you have to preach this particular text and really think about what it means to craft a, a good sermon on this at least once a year on all of the obligations and the things that are also forbidden in the Ninth Commandment. Like, for example, you know, straw manning people or 
twisting their words, and I think by implication, twisting their logic as well, and saying, well, you know, you start off with this starting point, therefore you think like X, Y, and Z, and the conclusion you will get to will be this particular thing. And um, that that can be a form of twisting someone's words, because if they haven't actually said how they're going to connect all of those points, you're presenting um, a witness about them and what they think that might be a false witness. And as well as that, if you actually have a duty before God to speak really well of people and do all that you can to promote the good in, in them and in what they think, um, that, that's a very striking combination of things if you take it very seriously. And I think that Bavink did, and I think that he is he's a really good example within the, the Heidelberg Dutch Reformed tradition of someone who applies that exposition of the Ninth Commandment to what it looks like to be a friend and to be a scholar. And I think that you can see very concrete examples of this and particularly his friendship with Christian Snukergronje. Uh, so I gave him quite a lot of attention in the biography. He starts off as a, a kind of liberal student, very skeptical, um, becomes a Muslim, lives a very odd double life depending on where he is in the world, and is ideologically, is, and also in terms of personality and background, as different from Bavink as you could possibly imagine. And they're able to sustain a lifelong friendship that is a friendship that transcends all echo chambers because they are so different. But what you find when Bavink engages with him in, in his letters is Bavink will say, you know, I read your article, you made a few points here. I think this is what you're arguing. And I wonder if, you know, by arguing this, you will get to a particular point. Um, but maybe I've misunderstood the first few points that you're making. And maybe the conclusion is not a tall one that you would want to entertain. Could you, you know, let me know how you think? Share your thoughts with me. You know, I need your correction. So you have this amazingly open friendship between the two of them that's really full of, of um, valuing each other precisely because of how differently they thought. And that is, that's, that's something that's really lost increasingly in our particular cultural moments, just because we don't have that ideal of critical friendship. Our ideal of friends is people who don't critique us and people who don't think um, in radically different ways to us. We see that as a sign of enmity um, because we, you know, we, we live in these online echo chambers and we find it really hard to imagine friendship across ideological divides. And that's not just the Snukrachronia case. You know, you see other people that Bavink engages with in person, and he really isn't on the same page as them theologically. Um, and yet he seeks them out in person to try and develop friendships. And then he engages with them critically and also appreciatively in his dogmatics. And that's a very unusual example in our current day as well. Um, part of me wonders if the geographical context helps, because the Netherlands is, is just geographically a really small country and densely populated very densely populated and um you know if you completely misrepresent someone in print you're probably going to meet them at some point on a train in a train station or you know as happened to Bavink sometimes or um at a conference and um there's just not the kind of distance that we have where we have a digital picture of someone and you really run them down without ever thinking i might actually see this person face to face and that might be very embarrassing so i think that probably helps as well and um, Bavink is just there in this moment where lots of different things come together that, that are quite conducive to an excellent example of friendship and irenicism and just trying to tell the truth about people um, as a way of honoring and loving your neighbor. I wonder, maybe as a last question, uh, I'm really intrigued by your account of Bavink's vi visit to the United States and that he wasn't very optimistic, in contrast to Kuiper, about the prospects of Calvinism in this country. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to 
the relationship of his pessimism and, and yet hope. He also says Calvinism is not the only truth, which is a very interesting uh, statement. So how do you understand, uh, you've already alluded to this in a sense of that he is he sees the potential of a Hitler-like figure to arise, and yet he is confident that Christianity will be able to um, continue in faith in faithfulness in the midst of complex situations. How do you understand the relationship between pessimism and, and hope in Bavink, especially when it, it deals with the prospects of, of Christianity continuing in the face of secularity and modernity? Mm, very big and uh, searching questions. So when he he goes to America, he concludes that Calvinism doesn't have a rosy future there. And this is his first trip to America as a young man. What he means by that is that in the 19th century in Europe, that was a hard century to live through. And people were just pessimistic about the future of Europe anyway. The Enlightenment had robbed a lot of people of Christianity as a resource for hope for the future because they had become convinced that it had nothing to offer in the first place. Um, it offered no miracle, um, no virgin birth, no resurrection, no life after this life. And it didn't offer a point of authority either in your life in terms of scripture or the authority of God. Um, but there'd also been a philosophical shift in Europe where people had moved from a kind of deistic view of a distant God who just wants you to be a good person to believing for a while that actually God was the world. God was in everything. And the world is God in some sense, in a philosophical sense. And that also produced a lot of bitterness and disappointment and apathy towards morality because that century was so hard in Europe. So if you're taught that God is the world or is in everything in the world, and the world is just a hard and horrible place, why on earth would you care about trying to live your life to keep God, that God happy morally? Um, so you have a very apathetic Europe in the, the later decades of the 19th century when Bavink is coming of age. And then in that context, all of a sudden you have Calvinism, you have Reformed theology saying, we can plot a path forward. We can show you the grace of God. We can actually give you really good reasons to believe intellectually in Christianity in the modern world. And that's tremendously compelling. And it's maybe hard for us to grasp just how, how much of a real world thing this was in the Netherlands in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. Um, so this was something that was winning mass popular support. It was really influential amongst young intellectuals. Uh, it, you know, led to the first modern democratic political party founded by Abraham Kuyper. It leads to a neo-Calvinist prime minister being voted for by the population. And it leads to all kinds of new things, new newspapers explicitly reformed, um, new Christian education, a school system, and so on. So there are all these things that are happening around you that are that look like real world proofs that actually Calvinism gives us a hope and puts us puts a fractured, really um, despairing society back together and, and energizes it. So if you're in Europe in that context, Calvinism makes a lot of sense. But then Bavin goes to America and sees these people aren't traumatized. There's a kind of chipper optimism everywhere. And even though the 19th century was so awful there, it just has doesn't seem to have impacted Americans because they're so far away from, from Europe and they have enough to eat and they have jobs. And as well as that, they don't really have a history. They've kind of forgotten what was in the old world when they sailed across the Atlantic. So it's all about the future and they're not bogged down by the past. And they're creating this new culture anyway. 
and they're very hopeful as they do so. And, you know, their theology is more kind of Arminian in the first place. Everything's about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps in culture and this, in this kind of social imagination. Um, and it's like that in their Christianity as well. So they're just not going to be receptive to Calvinism and its doctrines in the first place, which emphasize so much. You can't save yourself. You cast yourself on God's grace 100%. You contribute nothing. All you give back is a life lived in gratitude. And also, they're probably not going to be receptive to Calvinism as the thing that they need to rebuild their society because it hasn't really fallen apart in the first place. So for that reason, he just didn't think that Calvinism would take off in America. And then he goes back to the Netherlands and gives all these lectures where he ends each one by saying, but don't despair, Dutch friends, because Calvinism isn't the only truth. I think what he means by that is that although he was really convinced that Calvinism was the most, it was the best biblical uh, appropriation of the biblical faith handed down to the saints throughout the ages okay so it's the best articulation of christianity but he also thought that christianity was something that was too rich to be contained by any one um, articulation of it even the very best articulation there's still more you know there's always this inexhaustible treasure of meaning and power within christianity that will take root in different ways in different parts of the world so he thought we can't just export Dutch Calvinism and think that it's going to work in America. You actually have to let Christianity grow organically in America, and then you get an American Christianity. In the same way that I think he thought for other parts of the world as well, you can't just export Dutch Calvinism to sub-Saharan Africa or to East Asia. Um, the church will grow and thrive across the world um, by the grace of God, not because of Dutch industriousness in exporting the best thing that they have. So, you know, if the gates of hell can't win against the church, American lack of receptivity to Calvinism also isn't going to thwart God's plans. Um, it's not the only truth. So I think, and there, you know, there, that's something that Reformed people today can, can chew over still and, and really think about. Well, James, you've been so generous uh, with us, uh, with our time and our, our, our big questions that we've been asking you. The book is Bavink, A Critical Biography with Baker Academic by James Eglinton. And uh, Gail, thanks so much for co-hosting with me. Thanks for having me. It's been great to be a part of this conversation. And James, thanks for joining us. Thanks to both of you. It's really lovely to catch up with both of you and talk about stuff that, that really matters. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gail and James and can see many of the connections between Bavink's time and our own. You can learn more about the book by reading our review written by Dr. David Westfall on the In All Things site, link in the description. But I hope you will eventually get your hands on the award-winning biography. We want to make that easier on you by giving away three copies. In order to enter the drawing, you can share the episode on social media or chasing the link in the episode description. This contest will run for two weeks until the next episode is released. And until next time, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Shannon Bisher, Emily Rowe, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, 
please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.